They've got him. This unnamed Barreter, they've got him up and out of the pitch, and they are tearing great hunks of flesh off of him. My gosh, can it get more dramatic? Yes, it can. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. And we are in Inferno, Canto 22, lines 76 through 93. I want to say that if you're just finding us now, (laughs) there are 130 episodes behind us that start the entire walk through Inferno. We've been doing this for a while, but you are welcome to catch us at any point, this or go back to the beginning and figure out how we got here. We're in the fifth evil pouch, the fifth pit of the giant eighth circle of hell, the circle of fraud. We've been carried down here on the back of the beast of fraud with our pilgrim and his guide, Virgil. And now we have come amongst a pack of demons in a nasty ditch filled with boiling pitch and people on the political grift. The demons have one of them in their clutches. And off we go to Canto 22, lines 76 through 93. When they all hushed their fury a bit, and the guy was still staring at his open lacerations, my leader grabbed at another chance to ask him, Who was it you mentioned from whom you took your miserable departure to come to the bank? And he replied, It was Friar Gomita, the guy out of Galura, who's the very urn of fraud, who had his master's enemies in his hands and handled them so that each one sings his praises. He took their cash and on the sly let them get away. So he says. And in other official duties, he wasn't a small-time grifter, but a kingpin. He's always hanging around Don Miguel Zanke of Logoduro. When they talk about Sardinia, their tongues just won't wear out. Oh my, look at that one, snarling through his teeth. I'm going chatting, but I'm afraid he's getting ready to claw my scaly bits. And that's where we're going to drop it just at the threat of violence again. This is an incredibly wild passage with lots of historical detail in it, or should I say, lots of almost historical detail. Let's get to all of that, the two people this center mentioned, and the passage itself. It starts out, when they all hushed their fury a bit and the guy was still staring at his open lacerations, my leader grabbed at another chance to ask him, and then Virgil goes on and indeed asks him a question, which we'll get to in a second. If you remember, Virgil has been challenged by the Pilgrim Dante to figure out who this is. Again, the early commentators name this figure. We talked about this in a previous episode, but I like it 
very much that he is nameless. And I would prefer to keep him nameless because like a good grifter, he's really quick to name other people. Man, he's out fast with these names, Friar Gomita and Michael Senke. He is quick to name compatriots in the ditch, but like a good grifter, he himself pretends to be rather anonymous or attempts to shrink into the background. You don't want to be a political grifter at least underlings don't, and stick out. You want to kind of hang back into the crowd, but be on the take. That's the best way to get your money. And I think it fits with his personality that he doesn't name himself, although the early commentators certainly want to, but in fact, he names everybody else. And there's one more thing here, and that is possibly the most horrifying line in all of Inferno, although there are some doozies ahead of us. But this bit, the guy was still staring at his open lacerations. Remember that Lovecraft has torn a chunk out of him with a grappling hook? And it's that just passing moment. It's easy to almost miss it. But here stands this guy staring down at open wounds. Surely Dante, if indeed he had been in battles for Tuscany, had seen this, had seen men still standing, looking down at their disemboweled stomachs or looking down at themselves with pieces of flesh hanging off. Medieval battles were horrifying in every way imaginable. Yes, the battles in World War I were much worse in terms of the amount of dead, but those deaths were, I hate to say this, relatively quick to being chunked up by knives and swords on a battlefield. You can linger a good long time still opened up. Oh, it's just disgusting. And I find that line, that guy still staring at his open lacerations, to be horrific and to keep in our minds the absolute horrific nature of this scene. Let's talk about who this Barrator names. Virgil jumps out with his question, who was it you mentioned from whom you took your miserable departure to come to the bank? Remember, this guy had said, I just left some guys who come from your parts. Virgil had to ask the question, do you know any Latino, any Latin, any Italian down there? Remember that discussion? The guy said, oh, I just left somebody who came from those parts. So Virgil's following up on it. He's taking this moment to follow up, and the guy's really quick to come back with an answer. It was Friar or Brother Gomita. They were going to talk about this in just a minute. The guy out of Galura, we'll talk about that in just a minute, who's the very urn of fraud, who had his master's enemies in his hand and handled them so that each one sings his praises. Wow, he's so good at the grift that he's got his master's enemies in hand, and yet they still sing his praises because, you know, once they slip him a little coin, they get away. He took their cash and on the sly let them get away. That's what this unnamed Baritus is. And then he adds this, or so he says, and in other official duties, he wasn't a small-time grifter, but a kingpin. I mean, this guy was like, oh my gosh, he was the head grifter of grifters on the Sardinian island. <laughs> he was just absolutely in front of it all. Okay, so who is Friar Gomita? Well, Friar Gomita, or Brother Gomita, according to the early commentators, was appointed a judge of Galura, and Galura was one of the four administrative 
districts of Sardinia. Sardinia was partially overseen at this point by the Pisan leaders and partly by the kingdom of Naples and Sicily on down south. Sardinia is kind of a bit of a divided realm. There are four administrative districts to it. Everybody's kind of paying obeisance to each other, but still Galura is one of those four administrative districts. He, this guy, Friar Gomita, according to the early commentators, openly sold public offices. Uh, he was appointed by Nino Visconti, and Nino Visconti is a Guelph Pisan leader. Nino basically ignored Gomita's grifting until Nino found out that Gomita had released prisoners for a fee. So people who were taken in prison probably for political problems, but could also be for actual problems, actual crimes themselves. But given the times, political prisoners most likely. And he'd release them for a fee. And at that, Nino Visconti had him hanged. Now, that's a story according to the early commentators. Is it doubtful? Because the early, you know, we always ask this question because the early commentators made so much up. They wanted to identify everybody, even this poor unnamed barrator who's talking. They so desperately wanted to name everybody in comedy that they made up stories about people who Dante, the poet, may have chosen to be a little fuzzy or nameless. But in fact, this story might be closer to the truth than some of the others from the early commentators. And let me talk about that, why, why that might be so for just a second. There are two things of interest about this speech that this nameless barrator gives about Friar Gomita. One, while barratry sounds like a political crime, here's a member of the church a friar, a brother, who's tied up in it, who's committing this political grift. That seems to me important because we have passed the Simoniacs, the people who sell church offices, and you might think we've gotten down into a pit of a quote-unquote secular sin. But in fact, here's a church person who has been appointed as a judge of Galura. So you've got a friar working as a political appointment in part of Sardinia, and the friar is selling political offices. It's interesting that the Simoniacs and the Barriters are not kept in separate spheres. That is, there's the politics in this one, and there's the church in that other one back up above us. Rather, they're mixed together. And Dante is never comfortable when the church and state get in bed with each other. Now, let me say one word about this before I pass on to a second thing of interest in this passage. One thing about this is that people somehow overstate or misstate or make too simple Dante's position. They say, oh, Dante, he was in favor of a separation of church and state. Now, he was not in favor of a separation of church and state. He was, if we read his own writings, in favor of two what's the best word to say? Spheres of influence, the church and the state, and they should stay out of each other's business. The church should be involved with your soul, and the state should be involved with your physical well-being, and they should stay away from each other, or they should even 
better and in Dante's most fantastical and most idealized world, they should work together. The church toward the mm, lifting up of your soul to divine things and the state toward the bettering of your physical position in the world. And the, these two should work hand in hand, but not ever exchanging coin and one not necessarily over the other. Now, that's where Dante gets crazy. And that's why Dante's writings were, in fact, banned after his death. It's because by the church, banned by the church because of this claim that one should not be above the other. Of course, the church would like to think it's above all the political leaders. So let's go back to our barrator here talking. Again, we see a church member working out political grift. They're in bed with each other. This is the kind of stuff that makes Dante notoriously uncomfortable. And here's a second thing to notice from this speech, and that is a figure that's lying behind it, this Nino Visconti, this person who nominated or got Friar Gomita the position in Galura. We will see again. We will see Nino Visconti in Purgatorio. He's in, on Mount Purgatory, he's actually in the eighth canto of Purgatorio, right before the gate of Purgatory itself. Yes, <laughs> there are eight cantos of Purgatorio before you even get inside Purgatory. That's a long way ahead of us. But we will see Nino Visconti in this spot, right in front of the gates of Purgatory. It is in one of the strangest sequences of all of comedy. Uh, it's a deep valley. Uh, they descend into this valley to spend the night. Uh, we'll find out when Dante is climbing Mount Purgatory that he actually has to sleep. They're up in daylight and there are sleep times. You'll notice that there's no sleeping in this journey in Inferno. Nobody ever says, oh, Gosh, it's, we've been at this for 24 hours, 48 hours. I got to sleep. No one says that here in Inferno. They just keep walking. When we get to Purgatorio, Dante's going to have to rest on this arduous climb up this giant mountain, and he's going to go to sleep, and he's going to dream. And the dream he has in this valley in Purgatorio 8, where Nino Visconti is sitting on his way up into Purgatory, is one of the strangest moments in all of comedy. Dreams about serpents and angels. It's wild. It's nightmarish. It's weird. It's something out of surrealism. We have to wait to get there. But I just want to point out that Nino Visconti is ahead of us and he's sitting kind of as a back figure here because if the early commentators are right, he's the one who put this brother Gomita in this political position in Galora. And we should mention too, that Nino Visconti, clearly, if he's in Purgatorio, is seen by Dante as being one of the good guys. But more on that much farther ahead. Let's look at something else that seems important about this speech. The trick of baritry is to put those above you at your mercy. If I'm handing out some coin to get up the political ladder, it may seem like that kingpin grifter up there, the guy I'm giving my money to to get political office, it may seem as if he's in charge. But really, if you're a 
good grifter, you try to get your leader to eat out of your hand because your hand has the money in it. That's an inversion of the typical order. And we see all kinds of inversions in this passage. For example, that demonic decurion. In this decurion, the leader Curly Beard is not really in control. They're, after all, tearing the sky apart, limb from limb, or hunk of flesh from hunk of flesh. So the leader, Curly Beard, is not truly in control of these demons. Here's another inversion Dante and Virgil are being led by demons. Doesn't that seem wrong to you in a Christian poem? Does it really seem right that our pilgrim and his classical poet guide should be using demons as their guide? I know what Dante says in the Church of Saints in the tavern with boozers, but I mean, really, do you want to take your lead from boozers? Is that smart? to do. And you'll notice that there are all kinds of distortions or inversions inside of this guy's speech. For example, he talks about Brother Gomita, Friar Gomita, out of Galur, the urn of fraud. <laughs> He's just such a, a, um, a well of accepting cash from political prisoners who had his master's enemies in his hands and handled them so that each one sings his praise. He took their cash and on the slide, he let them get away. And then there's this little slip, or so he says in the Florentine, si come dice. It's just this little slip of doubt. Well, come on. Well, at least that's the story he tells. That's how he tells it. It's so mm, slipped. You're telling this long story about someone in the pitch with you, and you're giving kind of their life history very free-handedly, and then you say, well, well, at least so they say. Don't you see there's a little twist of doubt in the passage, that twist of doubt is another inversion. In fact, this entire pouch, the entire fifth evil pouch of the landscape of fraud is a huge inversion in and of itself because here, how can I say this? Storytelling gets bigger than theme. And that is almost never the case for Dante. In Dante, the thematics, what you're supposed to learn, how the poem is supposed to convert you, how the poem is supposed to make you a better person, that thematic, those thematics are always sitting in front of everything. In this pouch, it's reversed. And the story is bigger than the theme itself. That larger meta inversion may actually be intentional here. There's got to be a reason besides even just psychological reasons. I was accused of baritry, says the poet, so therefore I'm going to sit with the baritors for a while and invert everything. There's got to be a reason why storytelling becomes so important in this pouch. I wish we could do this entire sequence in the fifth pouch in one episode of this podcast because it's really one giant story. In fact, some Dantistas claim it's one play that can be divided up into acts. I'm not sure I quite buy that three-act or five-act structure inside this sequence, but I am sure that it is one giant story which seems to have superseded the thematics of Inferno.
Let's go on and talk about what else this barrister says. He says that this Friar Gomita is always hanging out with Don Miguel Zanka. Don Miguel Zanka. Don Michael Zanke. So he's always hanging out with Don Michael Zanke of Logoduro, another of the administrative districts of Sardinia. When they talk about Sardinia, their tongues just won't wear out. Oh, my God. Our, I mean, our Grifters are just petty people, right? Grifters are super petty and small. I mean, what else are they going to do? <laughs> they found each other in boiling pitch inside an evil pouch. They're both some Sardinia. What else are they going to talk about? Uh, the weather? This guy's little snide. Their tongues just won't wear out when they talk about Sardinia. I mean, it just shows you how petty barriters are. Great characterization on Dante's part. And then the guy goes on, oh my, look at that one, snarling through his teeth and starts to uh, to show back to the fear of the sequence. Let's just talk about this Don Michael Zanke for a minute. He was a governor of Logoduro, according to the early commentators. That's, again, another administrative district of Sardinia. According to the early commentators, he became the governor of Sardinia when he married Al Adalicia de Torres, who was the wife of Encio, the king of Sardinia and the bastard child of Emperor Frederick II, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Apparently, according to the early commentators, Adalicia divorced her husband Encio and married Michael Zanka, and that Michael Zanka then couldn't really become king of Sardinia, and so he became a local governor. I should tell you that all of that is heavily debated. Some of the early commentators actually have him marrying the mother-in-law of Encio. Some of them have him marrying, again, Encio's divorced wife. Even the question of the divorcing of Encio is now doubted. There's so much in this story that seems to be made up by the early commentators. It's none of it very clear. But one thing is clear. Michael Zanka was murdered by his son-in-law, Branca Doria. He was murdered sometime in the late 1200s, and that's pretty well established. Why is that important? Because all of this is important for what's ahead in comedy. Both of these figures... Friar Gomita, Brother Gomita, and Michael Zanke are attached to people who show up in Inferno Canto 33. Canto 33 is almost the very end of Inferno. Only Canto 34 lies ahead of us. They are people there are particularly nasty treacherous types and Canto 33 were on the floor of hell in this canto amongst really despicable people and here at the bottom of hell in canto 33 we find two of the most horrific encounters in all of inferno in fact this is the place where we learn that zombies exist that souls can fall out of bodies up on earth and that the body can still walk around with a demon inhabiting it. We're going to find all that out in Canto 33 as well as watch a scene of unbelievable, disturbing and disgusting cannibalism. And these figures 
are all going to reappear in 33. Why is it important to say now that Branca Doria is going to appear there? There's going to be a story there tied to Nino Visconti. Why is that all important to say now? Because there's some kind of link here between Baratry, between the selling of political offices and those who are treacherous toward others, particularly those who have put great trust in them. This seems like a link. This is a form of fraud here with Baratry in which essentially no trust is placed. Oh, you just, I, I mean, I trust you to let me out of prison if I hand you over some coin, but not a kind of love bond trust. When we get down to 33, Canto 33, we're going to find people who violate a love or friendship bond of trust for treacherous reasons. And we seem to link Canto 22 and 33 here with two different figures. Again, down there, Nina Visconti will figure into one of the stories, the cannibalism story, and Michael Zanka will figure in because his son-in-law, Branca Doria, will show up as an example of the zombies. All that is ahead, but it's just to say that Dante seems to be setting his ducks in a row. In other words, comedy seems to be setting itself up to be planning out its future. Dante seems to have a better sense of where comedy is headed because these references here surely are not mistakes once we get down to 33. In other words, we're being set up for 33. I think what this means is the structure of comedy overall is tightening from the early cantos. Sure, Francesca mentions the deep pit of hell in terms of who killed her and poor old Paolo. Nonetheless, there seems to be there a notion of what hell looks like, but now we're starting to see kind of shadows of what's ahead of us, which means to me that Dante has got a firmer and firmer hold on where he's headed in writing this thing. Okay, let's finish off this passage. The baritone ends by saying, oh my, look at that one snarling that demon, snarling through his teeth. I go on chatting, but I'm afraid he's getting ready to claw my scaly bits. I mean, there's that threat of violence, which is never far removed. Even when he's here dropping names like crazy Michael Zanka and Friar Gomita and, you know, naming names. <laughs> he named names. He's naming names of the baritones. Even here, the threat of violence is never far in the background. But also, you'll notice that this is a good grip. That is, get them on your side with pity. I mean, snivel a bit. Seem like, oh, everybody just, you know, they dump all the trash on me. Really, honestly, this is great grift. Get them on your side. And he is. He's getting Dante and Virgil on his side, or he's trying to. And you should know that this bit, getting ready to claw my scaly bits, is very slangy in the Florentine. The best way to translate it, I didn't give it quite this edge to it, but the best way probably to transfer it is um, he's getting ready to itch my mange. And it's a kind of very slangy way of talking, itch my mange, especially in the Florentine. That's another great way to be a grifter. You know, talk colloquially, be real folksy about things, get people on your side, say, oh, poor pitiful me, I'm nobody, who am I? 
always to get people into the game with you. Because in the end, as we will see in the next episode of this podcast, it is indeed all a game. But to get there, you got to get to the next episode of this podcast. So subscribe. If you don't mind, give this podcast a like. It would even be great if you would drop a comment. Thank you very much for doing that. Thank you for being on this journey with me. This is crazy. I cannot believe we're at episode 131. It is absolutely insane. And yet here we are walking along with Dante. <laughs> what could be better? I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time. <laughs>